everybody, it's Ben Reiser, uh, Director of Operations for Wisconsin Film Festival, but also um, Head Programmer for the Wisconsin's own section uh, of this year's festival. And I am thrilled beyond words to be hanging out on a Sunday morning uh, with Eric Shabla and Jack Wally. Um, uh, it, it, it's Whaley, Ben, but... Oh, but, jeez. Jeez oh. Louise. Jack Whaley. Uh, kind of like James Whale with a, with a Y at the end. <laughs> That's how you remember it. Uh, he's a whale of a cinematographer. Jack Whaley um, and director. Uh, uh, but for this project, Eric was the writer-director. We're talking about One Foot In, which was submitted to us as part of uh, this year's Wisconsin Film Festival. And, uh, you know, I hit play on this thing the first time I watched it. And within two minutes, I was like, oh, oh, whoa, this is we're on it. We're on an, we're on another level here with the with the um, APT guys uh, bringing their A games and uh, the cinematography and the, the writing. The dialogue is just uh, really like, whoa. Am I watching an episode of Deadwood? This seems fantastic to me. Um, so anyway, so it was an easy it was an easy pick for us. Like, oh God, yes, we need to show this movie. But uh, let's talk about it. How did this um, How did this project come into being, Eric? Well, just so as Jack was kind of saying a few minutes Be- ago before we, the interview, yeah, before the interview, <laughs> before the interview began, uh, we Jack and I met. Uh, relatively recently, a couple winters ago, is that right? Last winter, the winter before. Uh, And I had written a script and Jack and I were kind of in talks to do it. And then COVID hit. uh, And we, this other script required a child actor and it just got too, way too complicated. Um, So uh, I said, well, you know, give me, give me a couple of weeks and I'll see if I can come up with something else. And I think, you know, something about the, how immediately panicked everyone was with that, with the virus and all of a sudden we're having, we're having conversations about mortality, actual conversations about living and dying. um, And about the fact that these, you know, we're in these communities of otherwise healthy people and suddenly everybody's terrified. Uh, And I don't, you know, I, I really, really resisted and still resist the idea of making anything that's explicitly about COVID. Like, I just am not interested in that. Uh, so the idea, the idea, I think, though, can't be separated from this sort of unspoken subconscious angst that we're all having, right, about, about mortality. Uh, and then I, I knew that I wanted to do something you know, I had, there, there are some practical considerations if we were going to get this thing made, one of which is just like, let's shoot it outside. Let's try to do it all outside so it's safer. And I wanted, the, I wanted to bring the environment over the course of the film to the viewer um, step by step. Uh, because Wisconsin has some amazing outdoor places to visit, just amazing. Uh, and Jack and I spent months and months scouting this too. Um, so the idea, you know, but what can I say about the characters too? Like, I think I wrote this sort of with Marcus and Jimmy in mind. Um, and, uh, we can get into the language stuff later. Like that's kind of a whole separate conversation. Um, 
But I think it was a com- yeah. So I guess if I'm boiling it down, it was a it was a combination of the sort of existential switch that was flipped with COVID, wanting to do something with Jack because Jack is brilliant, and writing for the talent that we have locally. Did um I I, I yeah, and I want to get to Jack in a second, but I I just wanted to um kind of try to figure out um. This whole, I, I, you know, I have a, I had a question about how much kind of world building you did when you, when you wrote the screenplay. I mean, there's, these guys are grave robbers, which uh, is sort of like a, f- a familiar trope in, in film and, a, and, a, and I'm assuming all, all forms of like literature and, 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 and plays. Um, but did you find yourself actually, uh, was was grave robbing something you had had been interested in uh in your pat and 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 how much research did you do about because i i suddenly started thinking like does anybody do this anymore what is i mean clearly we're in a different time period but did you really did you did you tell yourself where this takes place in this year and it's it's our universe or is it you know how, how much you know how much uh context did you give yourself well, we, I will say, you know, I wrote the first draft as I tend to do, which is write a sort of magical realist version of our world, right? And so I think initially there wasn't much. It was about the two characters and I knew that I wanted, I read, I love the novels of like uh, Faulkner, Cormac McCarthy. So that kind of people that have a fascination with death, uh, but also can find great humor in it too. Um so that was, yeah, I think in terms of world building, that was the initial step. And then once I had that script and Jimmy and Marcus got on board, there was a night, and Jack was there, there was a night we we sat around a fire at Marcus's house and we just talked for like three or four hours and just started to actually construct, as you say, start to start to really look at the architecture of like, okay, what year are we in? How can we ground this? Uh, a little more specifically for ourselves, even though there's no there's no real mention made in the film of time, which is very which is super intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, ambiguity is obviously a really big part of this movie. Um, uh, well, one yeah. thing I appreciate about the movie is that there isn't that um, exposition. There's no exposition. I mean, the, we get little bits of exposition, sort of these hints about this failed attempt that led to the uh, capture of of Marcus's character. Uh, in the, in the yeah. past, but, but I mean, you know, there's no reason why these characters would be talking about their, the year or the, the date or the time. And right. so, and, and, and I, and I really appreciate that you don't try to shoehorn any of that information in. Yeah. And that's something that, I mean, Eric, when he sent the script out, I think it was like 1030 on a weeknight or something. And I like got it, got the email, read it immediately and emailed back and texted him, very excited. And I think one thing I reacted to right away was that I couldn't place it. Like it was beautifully, it's a beautiful script to read. Um, And, you know, going, it has unique language, which we'll get into. And I'm like, I was thinking like, where is this? Because the language is, is unique and it could be kind of dystopian future. It could be, you know, way past. It could be just otherworldly. And you know, I think you, you guys, what you're talking about is right on. It's, you know, you don't need to say the year is 1884, you know, post-Civil War. Like, that's, 
we don't need to get into that. And I mean, that's one of the things that intrigued me right away. But I do think that stuff, those, those details were kind of, you know, we did make decisions about that because it's very helpful for the actors, if nothing else, to, to sort of get really specific about what are the social conditions of the time? How these, how these guys arrived here? Where are they going? Right. All that stuff. But that's, you know, in my opinion, at least that's not something that's not something I need to tell you. That's something that the viewer gets to make up on their own. So Jack, um, I, I, I'm not positive, but I feel like this is the third film uh, that you've been involved with that we've screened at the, at the festival. Uh, de- definitely Christmas trees. Yeah. And singularity stories. That's right. Um, and now this one, and I mean, I, they are, they're all very, uh, clearly at this higher echelon of cinematography. Um, uh, you know, even though you're not the director of all of these films, there's, there's this through line with the visuals that we are suddenly, and you know, Wisconsin's own is a very mixed bag of, um, filmmakers at various time points in their career and talent levels. And there's everything from, you know, student films shot on like standard definition video to, to something like this, which uh, looks every bit like it could have come from a major film studio and cost a million dollars to, to make. Uh, it seems like, uh, one thing about one foot in is it would have presented a, uh, a pretty major challenge, uh, as far as capturing it, uh, capturing the images, so much of it takes place at, at night. Um, and it, I, for my money, it's one of the best sort of looking films shot at night that I've, that I've ever seen. Um, in, in terms of, uh, you never get the sense that there's lighting hidden somewhere that's, that's uh, allowing us to see these characters in a way that you wouldn't see them at night um, and being able to capture the sort of fine details throughout of the landscape and the characters faces uh, and their clothing. Um, how much of a challenge was it for you, Jack? And how, and how much did that challenge, how much did that excite you? Was that one of the, the, the reasons you were excited to do this project to, to sort of put that, put that challenge in front of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate the kind words and and getting right to the end of that. Yeah, it was this was a big challenge. It became, you know, again, going back to the script, read the script, two pe- two person short film. It's like, okay, we are contained here. Uh-huh. <laughs> and re- but then reading through the script and marking it up right away, it's like, okay, there's there's a lot of locations here. And you know, Eric and I worked together to kind of pare some of those down and make it. But at the end of it, I think we, you know, we shot for six, six days and four of those were nights. And, and I think there are six, uh, eight unique locations or something, seven or eight unique locations. So, and again, all outside. Um, and as we know, some of the prettiest places we, we can go to are not right off the road too. So that was another challenge. Um, the night, you know, the majority of this this film, view time, script time, and shoot time is at night. Um, and this kept me up many nights, actually, because it's it's just like, that is one of the 
the hardest things in, in cinematography, I think, to pull off convincingly. Um, and by convincingly, it's like you need to you need to not draw attention to the fact, as you said, that there that there are lights. Like if you bring a camera out outside at night and you try to shoot on your iPhone, you'll quickly find that everything is black. Um, and you know, we've we we we've all seen behind the scenes photos maybe of of major Hollywood pictures with with hundred foot condor cranes and massive lights lighting up entire valleys. And that's the way, you know, bigger budget movies do that. Obviously we did not have that. Um, but we kind of, you know, planned for a mini version of that and actually using, you know, newer technology with LED lighting, um, which you can run off lower power. You don't need giant generator trucks. Um, you know, we, we, we got a, smaller lift that we'd tow behind a pickup truck and and get a, our moonlight way up high as far back as we could um to kind of create that that wash of of moonlight and then you know bring in bring in light closer to the actor to kind of to kind of fill them in and and get make it so you can see their face because if you only have moonlight you're just, you're not going to see their face. So it's, it's this like dance of, it's not real. It's not, it's nowhere near what um, we see when we go outside, but there's a visual language through cinema history. Mm-hmm. And I think it's become more and more naturalistic, but also it's not natural at the end of the day. It's just us as viewers watching films by great cinematographers, like, we're accustomed to what night looks like kind of. And so my goal was kind of, and challenge, and, you know, I'll be honest, this was by far the most extensive night shooting I've done. Mm-hmm. You know, my challenge was to kind of not draw attention throughout the film. I hope the cinematography doesn't draw attention to itself outside of the story that it fits. Um, that's kind of a major goal. It shouldn't just be flashy um, to be, you know, it should fit the story. And no, absolutely. And it, and it doesn't, I mean, it, it draws attention to itself only in that it's so beautiful. And it's as, at certain points as somebody who watches a ton of films and like, as I said, watches a ton of sort of amateur productions. Uh, I, I just took note of it throughout because I'm like, Oh, this is, this is an amazing, uh, an amazing, uh, looking shot. And, uh, but, I, but, but it's not, it doesn't, it isn't, it doesn't call attention to itself in a, in a bad way, but I'm wondering actually both of you, were there, were there films that you looked at for inspiration for night photography? What are some of your favorites? Um, you know, what did, was there anything that you were trying to emulate or, or, or take, take, uh, take things from? Yeah. Great question. I mean, I think Eric has, um, yeah. And it's, goes without saying that Eric and I work very closely with, we have a whole Google drive folder filled with, I think hundreds of reference imagery organized by night and afternoon wow. kind of dialing into that. And I love doing that. That's part of my process um, near the beginning. Um, I mean, uh, let's see, assassination of Jesse James, um, no country for old men. Some of the, you know, the, the new world, Terrence Malick. Um, yeah. uh, 
Yeah, I mean, we talked, yeah, night, other night stuff. I mean, we've got to, I know, it's like now trying to think of our, all our references, where that stuff yeah. is pulled from. There is actually some stuff in um, Django Unchained that's interesting to look at, especially from a like, behind-the-scenes perspective. Like you said, Jack, there's a photo of them shooting that, with the scene with all those horses, and there's that just hundred foot light that's yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our light sources again at night are are the moon, right? And then and then the lanterns that these, mm-hmm. these men and thank thank God they had those lanterns because that's one more motivation for light. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're in a city environment, a contemporary city environment. There's all sorts of motivations for where you can bring light in, but you know, a period piece out in nature in the woods at night, you have the moon and hopefully if you light a fire, you have a fire. (laughs) Those lanterns were, you know, important parts of it and are present, you know, throughout, throughout the night shooting. Um, And I will, I just, I have to say this, like, you know, without the crew that we had, which the crew was for a short film rather large. um, Mm. And it's, 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 um, guys and women that I work with in the commercial world. Uh, and so we have kind of a, a, a second hand with each other, but without the crew, this, this would look vastly different. You know, it's not, it's not just setting up a camera and, you know, who's said who's setting up this huge lift and the lights and stuff. And it's this fantastic crew and furthering that, like we wouldn't have had that crew without the, you know, we crowdfunded this film without the incredibly generous support and contributions of, of our, you know, our supporters. So I just want to say that. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, clearly uh, there is a, a, a big connection and tie-in with APT in this film that you, uh, of course, the actors, and I think both of you are involved, have been involved with APT in some way. Uh, over the years, uh, I was wondering if that's if, if if APT was also a source for the costumes and the props, those lanterns. Uh, I mean, it, it's what a, what a fantastic resource if 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 I'm right about that. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. They were very generous. Yeah, both of those guys were costumed from APT stock. Um, mm. Scott wrote the uh, head of the costume shop. There was really helpful. Uh, and yeah, we've both, Jack and I have both, I mean, I worked there as an actor a couple seasons, um, and have done some various literary stuff for them. Um, uh, and I know Jack, you've, you've shot like promos for them and stuff, right? Or is that yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, growing up in spring green and my parents were involved early on. It's just, it's always felt like it's always been part of my life in some degree. And for, for props, like as Eric was saying, you know, APT again was generous with props also, um, there's a guy, Rod Schwegel, who, who collects, he has the, just an amazing collection of old antiques and stuff, real, you know, real stuff. So the Tammany's lantern, which is a silver kind of cool looking lantern is, is like, that is an 18, what was it? Forties or fifties? Yeah. It's like, some like, or like first half of the 19th century real. Yeah oil lantern yeah like, pretty amazing stuff german, just german made german glass and all this and and oh, he, he was, was so generous with yeah, yeah. put kerosene in it, it. it works great and yeah. um i mean he he let us use a ton of props free of charge and he's 
obviously looking forward to seeing the film. So, so the lantern is actually a functional lantern functioning the same way it would have in the 1800s. It's not that you put some kind of new fancy led light into that lantern. Well, you know what we, I planned for um, with Eric and the gaffer, we did a bunch of tests and I have small led that lights that are Bluetooth that just fit in the top of the lantern, you know, Mm -hmm. and we, you know, stuck two two behind each other, you know, side by side so that you could, you could make it so the front emits more light, but the back, which is towards the actor's face is down. So you're not blowing out their face. So we had this very, you know, well thought out, I think, clever, clever way to do it. Um, And I think there might be one or two shots where that's present, but we really found that, that, you know, a, a real lantern inherently has a dimmer on it, right? Like you, you, you bring the wick up, higher if you want it kind of um burning brighter or, or down lower and so i mean we for for 90 percent of the shots we use the actual lantern which flickers and gives off smoke off, out the top which gives a cool kind of aesthetic so yeah it was it was a that, was, lantern. that would not have been possible without maddie Yi, our props master who was just constantly between takes refilling those things just changing out the wicks <laughs> It's a, that's a, that was a full-time job taking care of the lanterns. And so uh, how much of the, how much of the lighting is, is the actual light from the lantern? Cause, cause you really can't tell. I mean, I, you know, if you told me we didn't use any lights, we just use those lanterns. I'd kind of be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, I'm assuming that that some of the light is actually the light from the obviously from the lanterns. But I mean, you know, if you had to say a percentage of this is really what the lantern is doing for us versus these are what these off screen lights are doing for us. What would you what would you estimate? I mean, I think it's it's pretty 50 50. There are some shots where the lanterns like just that you know, created that mood and that under lighting kind of shadow that just like worked and then hit them with a little, you know, back moonlight. But, you know, when, when our characters land underneath this big old Oak tree and, you know, they found kind of a grave site they're checking out like that, you know, that is, that is more than the lantern when they're at the dig site, there's definitely more light going on. Um, So it's, it, it's, it's a mix, but. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the writing and the tone of this piece and the influences or, you know, what you were, uh, aiming for. Uh, when I watch the film, there's three things that, that come to my mind, but that's my frame of reference. So I'll just say what those are. And you can tell me if you were thinking of any of those things and what else you were drawing on or inspired by. I mean, I clearly, I, 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 I can't help but think a little bit of Shakespeare, but that probably is because I'm recognizing these APT actors, um, and they're in a period piece and they're speaking sort of fancy, uh, you know, uh, colorful language. Uh, I also, of course, think a little bit of Beckett and there's a, there's a kind of a waiting for Godot vibe to the two characters. And, uh, you know, they aren't quite as sort of stuck in the same place, but in a way they are, they're kind of going around in circles and, and, uh, seem to be sort of trapped in their own, uh, universe of, uh, of having to be in each other's company, at least for this one, one maybe final night. Um, and then, and then, as I mentioned before, David Milch and Deadwood. Uh, but again, that's me coming from a film and TV that just my thing, but Eric, uh, talk to us about that. 
That's pretty perceptive. Um, yeah, I think you you got a lot of the big ones. Uh, definitely Shakespeare, because that's been, I mean, that's just been the bulk of my career as an actor has been has been doing Shakespeare. Um, and also, you know, the Gravediggers and Hamlet, that stuff is gold because it's, again, it's just the blackest possible humor. Um, yeah, definitely Beckett. I think the Milch thing is really interesting. I Deadwood was one of the first shows that that I saw probably way too young that just like <laughs> made me realize what you could do uh, with on TV, um, what was possible. And yeah, I think the way that it, Milch is a huge inspiration, no doubt. And I think the way that I, I was careful though, I think to deviate from, from what he does in the sense that, you know, what you're watching when you watch Deadwood is two vernaculars two kind of polar opposite vernaculars smashing into each other. You've got, and profanity is a big part of that. Um, the profane in general is a big part of that. And so I sort of stripped that out a little bit. And so I think the real, what I, what I sort of replaced that with, or what, what I hope kind of comes over the top is this, um, I found this lexicon of like 19th century thief lingo. Uh, and I, looked at it and adapted it and expanded on it and stole from it and all that stuff. Uh, and that is really, you know, that comes from uh, pre-industrial English thieves, you know, thieves who, and then that of course comes over the Atlantic and winds up in the American South. And so that stuff uh, that combined with this kind of ornate Victorian quality, and then you've got, at times you've got like an, a more like Appalachian or Wis rural Wisconsin feel to it. So, so there's also, I would add to that list of, of influences probably um, maybe Faulkner in the sense that it's a little bit free with punctuation. Uh, I mean, you know, and, and sort of the fact that it's, it takes place in a relatively small amount of time for a film. So there's just a, a meta narrative thing that's happening that I think I was, like I had read as I lay dying maybe a couple months before we, before we shot that. Um, there's probably, I mean, there's a bunch of other stuff also like this is going to sound maybe out of left field, but I've always been a big Toni Morrison fan and the way that she writes rural people and, and the way that she's able to draw really real profound beauty out of just the simplest environmental things like it's just always blown me away and so that's I think that that she's been a big influence in that respect um yeah I mean uh, let's see story yeah as you say story-wise it's like it's it's always interesting to take the sort of we also talked about Midnight Cowboy a lot like the partnership the partnership thing that and the and the tropes that are associated with that and how do you kind of subvert them or right. play with them and how much do these guys need each other so right. yeah so that's it's a big like anything else it's a big mashup of uh of what we're <laughs> what we've been exposed to our whole lives yeah it also just occurred to me of course of mice of mice and men that, that yeah that's right there. yeah too. sure other steinbeck stuff too yeah um I know you've been uh, working hard in post-production to get uh, 
a finalized version of the film, which I haven't even seen. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering what are some of the things that have been occupying your time in post-production? Is it, have you been fine tuning, uh, kind of like story points, like balancing, um, the ambiguities and, 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 and maybe trying to clarify or, or unclarify some things and, or has it been a lot of just working on sound mix and, and, and the visuals timing, I guess, color timing and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll take a stab at that and then Eric jump in. Um, yeah, the, for the post process kind of, um, let's see, no one cares about timeline. So, um, we've been working on all the, you know, all, you spend a bunch of time in pre-production, like getting everything together. The shoot, if they're a pie chart, the shoot time is relatively small piece mm -hmm. of the, of the chunk of making a film as we know. And then, you know, going into post-production kind of right when we finished the film, we were in kind of talks with actually before we shot the film or shot the film, we were in talks with Josh Schmidt, who's the composer, who's a, you know, a great, he's done so much stuff you know i think he started in the theater world and has done productions all over the world but more recently he's he's scoring more and more films features and and he we were very lucky to have him so obviously music is a huge part of this um and he's kind of started on that as soon as we were we were getting assemblies of the edit together um and then working with our editor asa dirks back and forth um and there was a month there where it was very much just like edit, editing grind, working with Asa, sh getting stuff from Josh, putting it together. Um, and, you know, to, to hit the Wisconsin Film Festival deadline, because we definitely wanted to, to get it in there. Um, and since then, it's kind of, yes, I think there's, there, there's certainly been refining of, you know, certain scenes, tightening things up, hopefully, hopefully, you know, making it more, more, you know, clarified in some ways. And, um, I think for the sound mixing and, and color and stuff, that's just a, that's, it sounds silly to say that's an important part. Of course, sound, sound is a, an important part, especially for this, because we want to, we want people to hear the, this language, you know, it's so important. Like you don't want to miss things these characters are saying because there's so much texture to them so you know that's been kind of kind of an ongoing thing eric why don't you jump in here yeah i think uh what was i gonna say oh yeah a lot of it's about um you know we this this for a short film i think this is paced uh slowly and you know we it's not starting with a car chase right like so we have to it's a balancing act of you know, keeping people, keeping the eyes on the screen and keeping people engaged and uh, taking our time, uh, as you say, Jack, to add texture and um, to make it this feel like a lived in world, uh, which I think from the short films I've seen, you know, uh, can, can sometimes be lost in the first, like certainly in the first half you you feel like, you know, maybe you're probably following the plot and you're following the events of the thing, but you don't necessarily feel like you've been invited into the, yeah. like you're breathing the same air. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's really been 
you know, but that's, that's a difficult thing to achieve when you're like, well, we got 25 minutes here and I can't, we can't spend the first, you know, we're (laughs) this isn't a Terrence Malick movie. We can't spend the first 20 minutes looking at a leaf. Like it it does need to move. Things need to happen. Uh, (laughs) So we've, I think that's been part of it for me, Jack is like, how do we, how do we get on balance getting on the train and going with, you know, in, sitting in the cinematography and see and seeing the world and feeling the world. Well, the, yeah. The, and I would say that the cut that I've seen starts with, um, this starts with a glimpse of the end of the film. And then, and then we come back to hours and hours earlier, uh, in, in the character's timeline was that, always a part of the of the screenplay and part of the plan or was that one of the things that you decided to do to sort of entice the audience to stick around and 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 get involved right away yep that was always part of the plan um that was in the first draft and that's like it's oddly enough something i remember from breaking bad something i just remember liking like the combination of yeah starting with a, a you know a cold open that's tells you something important about the end of the the end of the narrative yeah and then combining that with starting from a specific point of view shot too which we never really see we see it again obviously at the end but there's no other time in the film when the sort of visual language replicates that so yeah that was always intentional and i yeah and i think that's i guess that's the purpose it also just like on a really practical level it just tells you what they're doing. Like these guys are digging holes, right? They're looking for something. So right. that's helpful. Yeah. Was there, were there discussions about wh- who or what point of view we're getting in that shot? Is that like the point of view of the coffin or of the whatever's in that coffin? Yeah. Uh, or did it not get that deep? Oh, sure. It got that deep. I mean, I think the you know, and I, I would be loath, I think, to give away the conversation I had with with Jimmy about that. And Jimmy's um, Jimmy made a choice that uh, he made different choices, too, when we shot it. I mean, I think we that was the end of a really long night and we shot we maybe had three or four shots at that. And uh, it was different every time it was, you know, some of them were were really much bigger. Some of them were kind of flatter. Um, and so Jimmy has a choice about what that is. And I, yeah. And I, I mean, I think in a practical way, like, yeah, it's, it's the treasure, it's the coffin, it's whatever he's seeing. But, but of course, as the thing, as the movie gets developed and we start to realize the role that the environment plays, I think that when you, the, the goal was that when you see it at the end, it's a less, you have less of a practical attachment to what that is and more of a figurative sense mm-hmm. of what of what that might be for 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 that character right and and of course the title of the film is 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 just a slight shortening of a of a sort of uh i don't know what they call it but you know a saying a one yeah. foot in the grave so mm-hmm. yeah uh did was there a point i mean was that always the title of the piece and was there a point where you were going to use the uh the grave part of that sentence we're saying <laughs> I, I, I think that was always the title right jack that sounds yeah yeah, yeah from the first draft i think yeah 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 uh, um how many how many takes were you doing like what uh did you have a, what was your ratio there Oof. it was pretty speedy i'll tell you that i mean it 
we it felt like we were always under the gun because we had whatever seven locations to get to um mm-hmm. but i will say i don't think those guys ruined a single take i, I mean they were so and we rehearsed it you know we rehearsed for we had a probably good two week rehearsal period where we just we did it outside in the woods we did it over and over and over again so they were ready to rock and roll um i would say i don't know jack an average i mean it, for a dialogue heavy scene we do like f- five four or five maybe at the most yeah, yeah. i mean we, we we covered it in kind of a single camera traditional way you know mm-hmm. we weren't for most of it we weren't shooting two cameras there were, there were a couple moments that we did but um so but in each setup you know we had to we were timed down to the you know five minute mark to to hit our schedule of course um and uh thanks again to asa dirks for assistant directing on that and yeah um but yeah we didn't we didn't have we didn't have that many takes but what eric said is absolutely true and it, it the rehearsal helped but also as we know the caliber of of actor with james devita and marcus trashinsky is just like it was a it was such a treat not only for myself and eric and um but for the crew for the crew which many you know there's not a ton of film production happening in in wisconsin um and so for some of this for some of these crews uh that work on mostly commercial productions or whatever it was just like an experience to watch these actors because we would run you know for a master shot a wide shot we'd run the whole kind of scene i think the opening the opening dialogue scene we shot the golden maple leaves at devil's lake with the rocks strewn about and the care you know we just ran through that whole scene and right behind the camera kind of off the pathway um were you know the whole crew kind of set up in the monitors in a semicircle, like watching jimmy and marcus perform the scene in a way and it felt very kind of like you know they were acting on a on, on our own little stage and it was just such I, I know the crew just loved loved watching these experienced actors just kind of nail it and like Eric said they don't they didn't um you know they didn't I don't want to say screw up a take but like you know there's a lot that needs to go right for a yeah. take you know it's focus it's camera movements all that stuff and certainly technically we had issues but it was never we were never waiting on the actors no <laughs> no lines or anything no. And they're, yeah, I mean, they're theater actors, you know, so they, they're used to just like, if you fumble something, just go, just keep going. We'll get, and I think that really served us in the end, because there are definitely moments that we captured that are in the film that are mistakes, but happy mistakes, right? Just like that works so well. I will also just, I have to shout out to them again, because I threw a lot at them. I mean, Jack can attest to this. Basically, every time, uh, you know, I yelled cut, I was running up to them to give them thoughts and ask them questions and whatever. And they they were so flexible, so adaptable. Um, and, you know, it's they don't have I don't think either of those guys have a ton of film experience, but they it was really interesting to watch them develop their technique like on the fly. Really, really cool. Um, I mean, it's a real, I'm imagining, I mean, I'm not imagining because I have my own experience with it. It's a real luxury to be able to work with professional actors who uh, are not going to be the cause of any uh, delays or hiccups or having to do more takes. I ha- I worked with Jim Ridge and, and Colleen a couple of years ago on a Wisconsin Film Festival trailer 
that we needed to shoot outdoors outside of the Memorial Union in Madison in February. And it was the coldest day of the year as it, and coldest night of the year. I mean, it was like 16 below or something. And we were not planning for that. And they had to be in these costumes that were not, it was not supposed to be cold out in the, in the world of the, of the trailer. Um, and so we, I mean, the gear was freezing, like the camera was threatening to stop. The batteries were draining almost immediately. The lights were, were, were dying. We were frozen. Um, and it was great to be able to sort of just only have time and, and, um, functionality to get one or two takes of each side of the conversation they were having and then a master. And, um, I mean, it, it came out great and it was, but it was all because of, of how good they are and how, how their ability to nail it in, in one or two. I think I saw that. That was really, really fun. I loved that. Thank you. Thank you. That's really just why I said, told that story so I could get some <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, one more question about, um, about how you shot some stuff. I was, I, I was wondering what kind of equipment you were using, um, and, and, and what there, there, there's that one kind of tracking shot where the sun is behind them and they're walking from or traveling from left to right and the camera's moving along with them. Did you, did you have tracks or was that, is that just steady cam stuff that, that makes it look so smooth? Oh, you know what I'm talking about? It's like the sun is going down. That was, we used a, a gimbal system, um, kind of, kind of a free fly movie system. I think traditionally a dolly on track would be great um but given the terrain that we were on <laughs> through <laughs> this film um setting up and leveling a dolly track um also the weight of a dolly and hauling a dolly which is just was just impractical act impractical for our time and and you know with gimbal small lightweight gimbal systems you can get you know very similar um kind of feels and move camera move. So whenever there's kind of that, the steady shots, tracking shots, that's, that's, you know, a camera operator walking with the gimbal or in a scene when, when Greer Marcus is running through the woods, it's uh, our camera operator, John Sovi running through the woods, tracking him in the middle of the night. Um, so yeah, the gimbal system was pretty helpful for those. Well, Congratulations to both of you. Thanks so much for sharing this film with us and our Wisconsin Film Festival audiences. Uh, and I know I'm looking forward to see what happens next with the two of you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, Ben. And and again, you know, I I have to just shout out again to to our amazing crew. Yes, people like this. There are thirty. 30 people involved with this from PAs to camera team to, you know, lighting and grip team to, you know, I have to shout out to Madalena, our producer who put in countless, just yeah. countless hours yes. leading up to the film and through the film organizing um, with her assistant, Emma, um, the catering, you know, we had full catering. Um, I think the crew ate really well <laughs> summer, you know, summer and her mom. So it was just an incredible, like it was, it was an amazing experience, I think for, for Eric and myself and hopefully everyone else. And it, it really couldn't have been done without the crew we put together. And of course that support um, of the, of the people who, who believed in us and kind of supported us financially to make this thing happen. So, yeah. 
Thank you, Ben. Thank you for your time. Oh, yeah. My pleasure.